Matthew chapter 2, we're looking at verses 13 through 23, the last section in this birth narrative of Jesus Christ. Uh, we opened this series by looking at a, a passage that, was, that is rarely preached uh, from the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And now we're closing the series with a passage that is rarely preached. Um, This is a a difficult passage, one of the hardest episodes in the Christmas narrative. And many come to church expecting a sermon specifically about the birth of Jesus. We did focus on that two weeks ago as we've been making our way through these first two chapters of Matthew. Uh, But I've tried to show throughout this text that the biblical account of Christ's birth is filled with with emotional highs and lows. There's hopes and fears. They were faced with trials, tremendous challenges. And so it wasn't just all joy. There was joy, there was rejoicing, but there was also lament, and there was sorrow. And the story of Christmas contains these varied emotions. And each character portrayed seems to have experienced significant fears, even though there was a great deal of hope. And so we miss what God wants us to understand when we avoid these passages that deal with the hardship and only focus on the joyful text. And so I wonder if you allow room for lament in your celebration of Christmas. Do you allow room for flex upon the dark side of Christ's birth narrative? And that doesn't mean that the overarching message is dark and foreboding, that Christmas should be dreary and that all we should do is weep around this time. That's not what I'm suggesting. But in the midst of the joyful celebration of the Messiah's birth, we do read a story of great tragedy. This is the gospel narrative that we should not avoid. A confrontation between heaven and hell took place in Bethlehem, and it left several families utterly shattered. And so what would we say to them? Matthew structures this book around numerous references and allusions to the Old Testament. There's five references found in these first two chapters, and we've seen two of them already in chapter 1, verses, uh, verse 23, and then in chapter 2, verse 6. We'll see three in this text, in verse 15, 18, and 23, all allusions to the Old Testament that are fulfilled by the events surrounding Christ's birth. And so Jesus, according to Matthew, did everything according to God's sovereign plan. And that's what he's showing, not only here in the first two chapters, but throughout his book, he's constantly pointing back to the Old Testament, showing how Christ is fulfilling the plan God gave him. And so before we read this text, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding this. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the Christmas narrative. We thank you for the birth narrative of Christ. It is so important for us to reflect upon regularly. It is such a foundational component to our faith. And Lord, we don't want to simply cherry pick the passages that make us only reflect upon the joyful circumstances 
the the shepherds that came, the the heavenly choir that filled the 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 sky, that was rejoicing at the at the sight of Christ in human flesh. Lord, it is it is a time of rejoicing, and yet there was also times of fear when Joseph discovers that his betrothed is pregnant and has the assumption that she must have been unfaithful to him. We see the, the concerns of, of Herod as he plots to destroy the child. And we see the, the fearful flight to Egypt in this passage. We, f- we see the, the return again, but then having to, to go to Nazareth to, to get away from Herod's offspring. Lord, this is a, a passage that is filled with challenges for this family, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. And, and yet throughout it, we recognize that Matthew is continually pointing us and showing us how it is fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. That this was all happening according to your sovereign plan. And so, Lord, we can have confidence in our own challenges and trials that are sure to come and that we may be in the midst of even now. And we can face them with hope, just as his family did. Lord, so give us eyes to see that truth. Give us ears to hear it and soften our hearts to respond in obedience. That we might glorify you as you equip us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Read with me Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, spiritual warfare erupted when Christ's light invaded the darkness of this world. God was accomplishing his redemptive purposes 
just as the prophets had foretold, but joy was followed by tragedy. And yet through it all, God established the hope that all of us need, regardless of our circumstances. And so we begin with this family's flight to Egypt, and although that might have seemed like an unnecessary hardship at the time, it reveals how Jesus leads his people in a new exodus. So if you're following along in your outline, you have this theme of a, a, or this first point, a, a new exodus in verses 13 through 15. And after a slow first year in Bethlehem, as this family's getting acclimated to caring, you know, Mary and Joseph are getting acclimated to caring for this child, Joseph was warned by an angel to flee to Egypt because Herod was seeking to destroy the child. So this is anywhere roughly between one and two years of when Christ was born. There, Joseph is warned in a dream to flee to Egypt because Herod is seeking to destroy this child. And so imagine the sudden shock and terror this would have caused both Joseph and Mary. I no doubt they experienced tremendous fear. They knew how important their roles were in nurturing and caring for Jesus, but now on top of that, they've got to protect him from the threat of death. And Herod was a ruthless king. He had already killed his wife, his favorite wife. He'd also killed or had two of his sons strangled um, just prior to his death, maybe not at this moment in history, but a little after this. Uh, we know that he had his, a third son killed because he began to prepare for his own reign as the heir to the throne. And so the king had him killed as well. And so the insecurities of this, of this king's fragile hold on the throne haunted him with the news of the birth of another king. And, and so instead of trusting in the only one who could relieve him of those anxious fears, he sought to destroy him. He sought to put an end to Jesus. Joseph obeyed the angel's instruction probably the same night that he had the dream. He, he gets up and immediately they flee. He departs for Egypt with Mary and Jesus and they remained there, it says, until Herod died. So Egypt made sense for several reasons. For one, it's far enough away outside of Herod's, Herod's reign uh, but it's still close by, fairly close by. Uh, were, there was also a population of roughly a, a million Jews in the area at this time. And so in all likelihood, this family would have met up with relatives. They would have found a place to stay. He would have been pro- Joseph would have been provided work. He would have had plenty of people to buy his, his carpentry work, right? I mean, this was, uh, this was something that Um, makes sense for a number of reasons. But what Matthew focuses on is that it confirms a passage of Scripture, right? It's the fulfillment of Hosea 11.1. This was the primary reason for their flight to Egypt, because out of Egypt I called my son. And yet when you read Hosea 11.1 in context, he's calling Israel his son. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. That's not two different parties. He's not speaking of Israel and then Jesus here. In the context, Hosea is speaking about Israel 
as the Son of God. And so Hosea, it seems, has the first exodus in mind as he wrote his prophecy. Now, of course, Matthew knew this. He's not twisting Scripture in order to make it fit. Hosea spoke of Israel as God's son, and Matthew here is speaking of Jesus as God's son, as the the fulfillment of that idea. It's Matthew revealing the relationship between Jesus and his people, Israel. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus would spend 40 days of fasting and temptation in the wilderness. Whereas Israel was known for their grumbling and disobedience in that time, Jesus was victorious under trial. Whereas Israel was called the fruitless vine, Jesus is the true vine. And so by coming in flesh, Jesus identified himself with those he came to save, yet he himself was without sin. Moses led a rebellious Israel out of their slavery in Egypt, but Jesus is the true and better Moses, whose perfect obedience enabled him to lead his people out of their enslavement to sin. So Jesus identifies with the suffering of his people as the obedient son. Sinclair Ferguson says, being deeply troubled by the birth of Jesus Christ was not only part of Herod's Christmas, It is part of every Christmas. The light shines, but the clearer it shines, the greater the efforts of darkness to resist it. And so on the one hand, we can rejoice that Jesus Christ brought the light of heaven down to earth. But along with that, we should expect the darkness to fight back. That will look different for all of us. Your family might be healthy while your job security is weak, or it might be the reverse for you. And all of this fluctuates from season to season. This Christmas, you might be in one state, and you might be in the opposite next year. One friend of mine learned last week that he had 30 days to find a new location for their church to meet. Merry Christmas. You're being evicted. Another friend has found out in the last two weeks that six of the families that were regular attenders are leaving the church. And their church isn't much larger than ours. So you can imagine the devastation. You can imagine the anxiety that is building, the fears that they have this Christmas season. But regardless of whether we are in fearful or joyful circumstances, We always have the hope of eternal life that Jesus came to secure. I don't don't know your specific situation, but Jesus does. And I know that he can lead you out of despair that you might have sunken into this year. But even more importantly, this new exodus has led all believers out of a state of sin and misery and has brought us into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. And so that fact alone is cause for rejoicing, cause for living a life of gratitude. So Jesus leads us by a new exodus or into, um, uh, he leads us out of, an, uh, by a new exodus into a new covenant. Sorry, Jesus binds us to a new covenant here 
That's what we find in this next section, verses 16 through 18. Bethlehem is only about five miles from Jerusalem. And so it's a, it's a small city with a population under 1,000 at this time. I think oftentimes when we think of this section where Herod sends a slaughter squad, we're thinking of this massive population with, with just bodies upon bodies of infants and toddlers piled up. That's, that's probably an unhelpful picture. Um, this is a small city. It's a small area. And Herod probably waited no more than a day or two for the wise men to return and then discovers that they had tricked him. And we're not going to reveal to him the precise location of Jesus. And so his paranoia escalates into fury when he learns that he's been deceived. And, and he sends his soldiers to Bethlehem in order to wipe out all of the males two years old and under. <clears throat> D.A. Carson figures there were probably about 12 boys slaughtered, just based on that average population, how many infants or how many toddlers there would be, male toddlers, two and under. Of course, <clears throat> that doesn't make it any less tragic for those families. Right, if God is sovereign, how could he allow this to happen? That's what you're thinking. Why would Christ's birth lead to the death of so many? Sinclair Ferguson helpfully points out that correlation is not causation. Right? The, the fact that Jesus' birth occurred in the context of Herod's slaughter does not mean that it caused the slaughter. No, Herod's sin caused the slaughter. But that's a theological truth, and it, it might help some of us, but what does that say to the families? And how does that help them who, who had their young helpless sons ripped from their grip and ruthlessly executed in front of them? What would you say to those families? I know of no one who has uh, imagined this scene more powerfully than, than John Piper in his poem, The Innkeeper. And I'm going to do something that I don't usually do. I'm going to read a large section of this poem. Um, and some of you have, have heard me tr attempt to do this and, and fail. It's hard for me to get through it. But I've, I've done a lot of rereading of this, and I think I'm prepared. But the, the, the poem begins with Jesus returning to the place of his birth a few weeks before his death. All right, so he visits the innkeeper named Jacob. And he hears the story of what happened a year after they housed his family that first Christmas night. And so Jacob runs the inn alone, even though that night his wife and his two sons were with him. And so his wife is named Rachel, and she's still recovering from the recent birth of Ben. Hey, this is all his imagination. He's using names that reflect the, the very names that are listed in, in the quote here. Rachel weeping for her children, right? So he imagines the innkeeper's wife is named Rachel, that Rachel is, is the wife of the patriarch Jacob, right? And so Jacob is the name of the innkeeper here. This is all just Piper using his sanctified imagination. And so he begins here, or, or he continues, he says, we got a reputation here that night. He's speaking in the voice of the innkeeper Jacob. We got a reputation here that night. Nothing at all to fear in that we thought it was of God. 
But in one year, the, sw the slaughter squad from Herod came. And where do you suppose they started? Not a clue. We didn't have a clue what they had come to do. No time to pray. No time to run. No time to get poor Joseph off the street and let him say goodbye to Ben or me or Rachel. Only time to see a lifted spear smash through his spine and chest. He stumbled to the sign that welcomed strangers to the place and looked with panic at my face as if to ask what he had done. Young man, you ever lost a son? The tears streamed down the Savior's cheek. He shook his head but couldn't speak. Before I found the breath to scream, I heard the words, a horrid dream. Kill every child who's two or less. Spare not for aught nor make excess. Let this one be the oldest here. And if you count your own life, dear, let none escape. I had no sword, no weapon in my house. But Lord, I had my hands. And I would save the son of my right hand. So brave. Oh, Rachel was so brave. Her hands were like a thousand iron bands around the boy. She wouldn't let him go. And so her own back met with every thrust and blow. I lost my arm, my wife, my sons. The cost of housing the Messiah here. Why would he simply disappear and never come to help? They sat in silence. Jacob wondered at the stranger's tears. And then Jesus responds, I am the boy that Herod wanted to destroy. You gave my parents room to give me life, and then God let me live and took your wife. Ask me not, why the one should live, another die. God's ways are high and you will know in time, but I have come to show you what the Lord prepared the night you made a place for heaven's light. In two weeks they will crucify my flesh, but mark this, Jacob, I will rise in three days from the dead and place my foot upon the head of him who has the power of death. And I will raise with life and breath your wife and Ben and Joseph too and give them, Jacob, back to you with everything the world can store and you will reign forevermore. That's, that's the hope of the resurrection that we believers have in the midst of even the most tragic circumstances. Piper's imaginative reflection allows for lament. And it's what this passage calls for. But it restores us with the promises of the covenant that Jesus secured by his death on the cross. And so in Matthew 18, or Matthew 2.18 here, he suggests that the, the weeping of these families fulfilled Jeremiah 31.15. There you have Rachel the wife of Jacob, weeping from her tomb. She's already dead. She's in her tomb. But it's, it's this imaginative portrayal by the prophet Jeremiah of her weeping about her children being sent off into exile, being carried off into Babylon. And so she's weeping because they are no more. And it's a time of deep mourning. And yet, as we read in Jeremiah 31, 
it's surrounded by hope. God promises that he would still be their God. The survivors would enjoy his favor and steadfast love. The people would eventually return to their land. Joy and celebration awaited in the future. And God would also establish a new covenant with them. And so despite the weeping and loud lamentation occurring in Bethlehem due to Herod's slaughter, there is hope in the fact that Jesus escaped. Right? We would accomplish, or he, Jesus, would accomplish all that he came to do. The exile that occurred in Jeremiah's day resulted in an abandoned throne. Right? The Davidic line had no power to reign. And so the birth of Christ fulfilled the tears of exile. The weeping that began at Jeremiah's exile is now fulfilled in the tears of the families in Bethlehem who weep over the death of their sons. And the king has come in the midst of it all. Right, Jesus is our hope in the midst of great loss. And so it's, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, according to the preacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2. And yet Paul discouraged believers in Thessalonica from grieving like the world grieves. Right, as if they had no hope. And Jesus escaped Herod's slaughter and then his death on the cross defeated sin and his resurrection conquered death. The fact that he escaped Herod is cause for great rejoicing. And so by faith, you and I can be united to Christ in his life and death and enjoy the fruit of following in his resurrection. All right, we can be filled with the, the hope of a future restoration with all the saints who have gone before us. And it will be a glorious time of celebration that will make us realize how light and momentary our present afflictions really are. And so finally, Jesus ushers us into a new kingdom. And that's what's found in this last passage. Now, Joseph learns of Herod's death, but then he also learns that Archelaus was reigning in his place. And so he fears returning to Bethlehem the place that they last were residing before they went to Egypt. Uh, Herod's, or Archelaus, was just as ruthless as his father. Herod's descendants were notoriously wicked. You find that in the rest of the Gospels as well as in the book of Acts. Uh, they did not hesitate to kill, to murder, to maintain their power. And so Joseph takes his family back to their own hometown of Nazareth. We learn that in Luke chapter 1, that Nazareth was where they were from. And this decision was also the fulfillment of the prophets. Now, this is the most challenging of all the Old Testament references Matthew uses, because where does a prophet suggest that the Messiah would be called the Nazarene? If you're reading along in your Bible, you probably have footnotes that reference the texts of Scripture that are being quoted or referenced or alluded to, um, if you have a Bible that includes cross-references. But then you get to this passage, and there is no cross-reference. We don't know exactly who he's thinking here. But first notice that he says in, in this last verse, in verse 23, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets 
might be fulfilled. It's plural, prophets. So notice that he's carefully wording this fulfillment. Prophets is in the plural, suggesting that this is a general theme of the prophets rather than a direct quote from a specific prophet. Second, Nazareth, we learn in the Gospels, was a place that was despised. In John chapter 1, verse 46, as well as chapter 7, verse 42 and 52, it speaks of what people thought of Nazareth. And the first Christian readers of Matthew's Gospel would have easily understood this point because Paul himself was, was called under question because he led a sect of the Nazarenes, and it was meant to be derogatory. It's like he's, he's from Nazareth, or he, he follows this sect of people who, who believe in the one who came from Nazareth. Right? Paul wasn't himself from Nazareth, but that's what they called all Christians at that point. And so none of the Old Testament prophets predicted that Jesus would live in Nazareth, at least not that, that we can find. But many of them spoke of how he would be despised. One of the clearest pictures is Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And there's several other passages that we could read, but we'll stop with that one. Jesus was the king of kings, and yet he was also despised and treated like the lowest of men. He was not born in a palace nor raised in one. Not only was Jesus despised as a Nazarene, even the Nazarenes despised him. And he was a prophet without honor in his own town, he'll say in Matthew chapter 13, because he was despised and rejected by his own people. He was despised and rejected by those who were used to being despised and rejected. It doesn't get much lower. And so this theme runs all the way through the Gospels, weaving all the way up to his crucifixion. His obedience to the point of death reveals the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. The way up begins by going down. And that's, that's where Matthew takes his readers. In the very next chapter, which we won't be looking at, but you can read it on your own, he goes from Nazareth to the wilderness of Judea where John the Baptist called his hearers to repent. Right, John was sent to prepare the way of the Lord as Isaiah foretold. And so people flocked to John, they confessed their sin, and then they received baptism that signified their repentance. And so for any of us, It also begins there. Anyone who desires to enter the kingdom of God must first humble themselves in repentance. They must bow before the true king. And so here's all of these themes coming to culmination, right? Matthew follows the celebration and worship of the wise men with loud lamentation of Israel after Herod's slaughter of the male children in Bethlehem. Right, it's a story of great pain and loss, but also confident hope. Satan knew that he was on the brink of defeat and did his best to eliminate this child. But the fact that Jesus escaped means that he could face every kind of temptation in this life. 
that he could empathize with us in our own weaknesses and that he could put to death the penalty of every sin that was ever committed by those who placed their faith in him when he died upon the cross for their sins. And because Jesus rose again from the dead, he has the power to restore to life all those who have died in him. And so Christ's birth marks the beginning of God's promise to reverse the devastating consequences of sin. That's the promise of this passage. Right? And he completed that redemptive work in his death on the cross. After, after dying, Jesus rose again and he ascended into heaven and the glory of heaven followed the humility of the cross. That's the theme that all of us must follow. Right, if you repent and believe in him, then the hope of that future reward, that heavenly reward that is imperishable, that inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, as, as Peter calls it, will be your future reality. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this promise. We thank you for these reminders that even in the midst of the joyful time of Christ's birth, we can experience great tragedy and sorrow. But Lord, unlike the world, we do not mourn without hope. We have a great deal of hope because Jesus Christ was victorious over sin and death. And because of his victory, we have been ushered out of the enslavement of sin. And we have been bound up in this new covenant that he's brought us into. He's given us his spirit as a guarantee. And he's brought us into this new kingdom. The blessings of which we enjoy every time we gather together and sing your praise. Every time we gather in our homes and open your word together, we enjoy your blessings. Every time we reflect upon these themes in our own hearts, Lord, we, we are relying upon you to sustain us, to cause us to persevere through every trial that we will face in this life. And Lord, may they only serve to magnify our joy and the hope of our eternal reward. Lord, as we respond in song, may we lift our hearts in praise. May we be filled with the joy of our salvation. May we be filled with confident hope. And may we share that story with others. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand. Our hymn of response is Silent Night, Holy Night.